like to. We're talking about biblical interpretation, and two weeks ago I asked you to um, look up a few things or to define things. I gave you some terms that I was going to ask you to define, um, to put in your own words, or if you wanted to look it up, you could look it up and have a good idea of what these terms were that we were going to talk about today. So as we hit each one of these individual terms, I will ask you about them, ask you to help me uh, define them a little bit, see what you came up with, and then we'll talk about um, what I came up with. Establishing the rules. When, when we think about interpreting anything, you have to establish rules. There are rules of basic interpretation that must be followed. We can't just throw it up in the air and let fall what may and expect that whatever falls to the ground is what, what the Bible says or what anything says for that matter. And why is this important? Let me just ask it to you. Well, yeah, let me ask it to you. Why, why are rules important? Why, why would we even be talking about this? It seems somewhat common sense. Why, why would we even have a lesson on the rules that we need to follow in interpretation? Anybody? Thought? Ed? So that we can have consistency in our interpretation, not just ourselves, but one with another. Why else? So that we're not twisting scripture and proof texting scripture. And see, here's the thing. Exactly what Rosie just said. When I was um, in high school, I, t I was in advanced placement classes. So the more advanced classes going through high school, I was in several of them. And I was in advanced placement literature. And one of the things we did in literature was textual criticism. The idea of reading and criticizing, critiquing, uh, interpreting the meaning of various passages. And as we did so, one of the things that we learned is that meaning is subjective. That when Shakespeare put, and depending on the teacher, this was more or less emphasized, as Shakespeare put those words down on paper, as soon as he put those words down on paper, he was no longer the dictator of what it meant the reader was the dictator of what it meant. The reader now defined meaning, not the writer. Or the text defines its own meaning, not the reader or the writer. And this is floating around today. And it's in the church everywhere. To where people are reading their Bibles and they're saying, what does this mean to you? And so they're defining what the Bible says based upon their preconceived notions or their own theology or their own ideas. I've got a great example. I didn't bring it today. I'll have to bring it next week um, of, of, of a, a, a pastor um, who's seeking to justify her own false theology. It's a female pastor on the East Coast. She's trying to justify her own theology with the scriptures and, and completely just takes everything out of context. But it's, it's what it means to her. So it makes sense. See, that doesn't work. And that's why we need to establish the rules of interpretation. Because when we're all on the same page, we understand that interpretation is not left open to me or you. Interpretation is drawing out from the text the definite meaning. What it means. And there's no two ways about it. There is a meaning. And so let's go through some of these rules, these definitions, uh, establishing... Move that down a little bit establishing uh, some of these rules. And we're going to talk 
that's moving. It's not moving on my screen. There we go. Definition. So as we establish the rules, we're going to begin by defining terms. And this is all we're going to get to today. We're going to just define the terms that we'll be dealing with, and then we'll talk about how we're going to use these terms to understand. And the first question I asked you was to give me a definition of hermeneutics. Did anybody uh, come up with a definition? Well, what, is the, what is the word hermeneutics? What does it mean? Does anybody know? I know it's been two weeks, so... Um, that may have fallen by the wayside among other, among other efforts. And this would probably be the one that you'd be least familiar with of anything that... The other ones you can take a stab at, but this one, if you don't know what it means, you don't know what it means. Bev? Bev? Well, I didn't write it, but it's there, but it went on the internet. Um, it says, what a word. Yes. But it says, the science of interpreting the truth. Yes. Right, and I really like that definition. Thank you. The science of determining truth. It takes for granted that truth is objective. It actually comes from a Greek word, the Greek word hermes, which is the word for truth, or the word um, that spoke of that which is spoken. Um, the, the Greeks had a god named Hermes. And that was from the Greek word hermes, which is where we get the word Hermeneutics, and he was supposed to be a great orator. He was supposed to be a, a god that, that um, spoke truth. And of course, we know that these were false gods. But this word her hermeneutics, the science of determining truth. Uh, it's from the Greek word, ermenuo, meaning to interpret, to explain, to translate. It's a theological term. It's really only directed toward biblical interpretation. And it is describing the practice of interpretation, of finding truth. Finding truth. And so, we, when we speak of hermeneutics, or if you ever hear someone speak of hermeneutics, which I don't know if I've ever said it from the pulpit, I may have one or, once or twice, but if you ever hear someone speak of the, the idea of hermeneutics, which you might read it in a book or hear a pastor say it, uh, they're speaking of the, the, the science of biblical interpretation and drawing truth out of Scripture. Hermeneutics. Now, can anybody define meaning? As, as related to the te a text, what is its meaning? The meaning of a text. As we think of looking at a biblical text, it's the thoughts, the ideas, or the patterns, or understandings, which the author willed to convey by the words he used. Now, we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come, the idea of the author willing it. The author determines meaning. We're going to come back to that. But when we talk about the meaning of the text, it's his thoughts, his ideas, his patterns, and his understandings. Uh, and Bev, when she was speaking of hermeneutics, she mentioned the context. She mentioned the culture. She mentioned the words. And when we think of hermeneutics, we really are talking about going back to the setting in which it was written, the intent, the people that it's being written to, the culture, 
and the original language. Now, that doesn't mean you have to know all of these things, and we have tremendous resources, but thank the Lord we have an amazing, wonderful translation of the, of the Bible uh, through the King James, and they reflected so well the original that really, in many ways, if you have a good English dictionary and you know your English grammar, there are the majority of the things that we would need to know from the Word of God can be found in the English text. Every once in a while, there would be a confusion where you can still find it in the English, but uh, it's a little more vague, and the King James translators did that on purpose. They, If it was vague in the Greek, they left it vague in the English, even though um, we could come to a definitive interpretation. They did not seek to interpret the Bible in their translation. They sought to translate it. We'll talk about that word in just a little bit. But all of his thoughts, the ideas, the patterns of meaning, his understanding, all of this... Th that which the author will to convey is found in its meaning. So as we talk through this series, whenever I talk about the meaning of a text, we're talking about that which the author intended to convey to you or to I. To you or to me. Implications. I didn't ask you to define this word. The word implications. The implications of a text are those elements of a text's meaning which are not explicitly stated, but which are consistent with the author's meaning. We'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment. So, things that aren't explicitly stated in the text, but are consistent with his meaning. Be thinking about where you might see something like this in the Bible. Something that's, there's a command given, or a, a statement given, and based upon that statement, there are legitimate implications of that statement that can apply to us. We'll talk about this more. Here's a quote from uh, Robert Stein in his book, A Guide to Interpreting the Bible, page 40. He said, The goal of biblical interpretation is to understand not just the specific meaning of the authors of Scripture, but also by understanding their world pattern of meaning to understand the various implications. These implications are not determined by the interpreter, however. On the contrary, they are determined by the author. By his world pattern of meaning, the biblical author has delineated what the implications of his meaning are. So we're not talking about applications here. Things that might apply to you, but not to me. Things that you might see, but I don't see. We're talking about implications. Things where the author laid something down, and by implication... He also would have said, and this, and this, and this, and this, if he had known about them, or if he was creating a comprehensive list. Let's talk about this a little bit more. The author's meaning includes all implications and are all intended, whether consciously or unconsciously. So whether he consciously intended or unconsciously intended, any implication of his meaning was intended by the author. If the author were, if, if the author were here today and he heard his verse that he wrote and he saw the way that we were interpreting it, he, he would see the implications of what he wrote and he'd say, yep, that's what I meant. That's not explicitly what I said, but that's what I meant. All implications are bounded by the author's world meaning. Let's use an example. This is the best way to figure out what in the world I'm talking about here. We have a pattern of meaning. If the square is our pattern of meaning, notice that within the meaning there are various shades. Various shades. These are valid implications to the text. 
invalid implications. There are things that are not true implications. Things that if the author was here, he wouldn't say no. That, that's, that's not where I was going with that. You missed the boat on that one. That's not what I mean. Maybe they're the wrong shape. Maybe they're the wrong uh, color. That's supposed to be blue. Maybe they're both wrong shape and wrong color. Whatever it is, it's, it's, the, it's improper implications. You have proper implications, but it's all about what the author will. This is not me making up implications. This is me understanding the implications of what the author intended. Here's an example. Ephesians 5.18 And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Somebody help me out here. What is the command? What is the command given in this verse? Rosie. Right. Very good. Be filled with the Spirit. That's a positive command. Very good. What's the negative command? Bev. Don't be drunk with wine. And so we have a contrast. The entire command is don't be drunk with wine, but rather be, be filled with the Spirit. It's one command. So the explicit command is don't be drunk, but it doesn't just say don't be drunk. It says don't be drunk with wine. A specific alcoholic beverage. And so from this, that means I can be drunk on beer or on rum or any of those other things, right? Because it, the, the explicit command is don't be drunk on wine. No. See, there are implications to this command. Things that if Paul were here today, he would say, yeah, I also, but, but I said wine, but of course this extends to any alcoholic beverage. Does it extend beyond alcoholic beverage? Could Paul's implications go beyond alcoholic beverages? Ed saying yes. Anybody want to explain to me how perhaps that might work? I agree, by the way. Uh, Sarah? Very good. When we see the contrast, Paul didn't just give the negative command, but as Rosie pointed out, he gave the positive as well. When we see this positive command, what we understand from the positive command is that rather than being drunk with wine, it is intended that we would allow, that we'd be filled with the Spirit. That we would allow the Spirit to be in constant control of our mental faculties. In other words, if there is something that we put into our body that would, and that would with, uh, disallow the Spirit to have complete control over our mental faculties and our will, then it falls within the implications of this command. And so if we were to look at this again, um, Paul gives a pattern of meaning. Valid implications. All alcoholic substances do not be drunk from alcoholic substances. Mind-altering drugs do not allow your body to consume mind-altering drugs. Now, how far do we go with this? You're about to go in for major surgery and they want to give you something so that you don't feel it. And you're going to get loopy. And you're going to say things and you're not going to remember what you said. And you don't know how you're going to react. Well, you are not placing yourself in a constant state. You are, for a time, placing yourself under a drug for a circumstance that will then be done and over with. Probably not what Paul was speaking about here. What he's speaking of is as we're living our lives, 
Do not place yourself in a situation where you cannot allow the Spirit to work through you because something else is controlling you. Alcoholic beverages. Mind-altering drugs. Perhaps some other valid implications. But there would be some invalid implications as well. Perhaps that one I just gave about going in for major surgery might be an invalid implication um, of, of what Paul was saying here. Various possibilities as to what those invalid implications would be. But you notice here we're talking about world meaning. We're talking about what the author intended when he wrote this. And it does go beyond what his explicit words, it can go beyond what his explicit words mean. But that doesn't mean that we have the right to willy-nilly just say it means whatever we want it to say. We can recognize from the text where Paul was going and what Paul intended. Any questions on that? We have another couple examples before we finish implications. Did that not go? Okay. Further uh, implications. Let's consider a biblical example. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 10. I have 9 there, but it's actually Acts chapter 10. Change that very quickly. The apostles did this with Christ's command. The apostles took what was told to them and what was commanded to them and drew out the valid implications of the command in order to set doctrine and practice. In Acts chapter, nine, Acts chapter 10, excuse me, we have Peter. Peter is in Caesarea. Excuse me, Cornelius is in Caesarea. Peter is in Joppa with a, um, staying at, with Simon the Tanner. He is hungry. He asks for some food. They're preparing food. Peter falls into a trance. Look at verse 9. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh into the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth wherein all, were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowl of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done thrice. And the vessel was received up again into heaven. There's a, a second element of interpretation here with that, that idea of it being done three times. If we are to take the breadth and the scope of Scripture and understand this, this three-time analogy, this three-time usage, we recognize that in the Hebrew, repeat, repetition is the way of emphasis. In Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim cried, Holy, holy, holy. Heavy emphasis through repetition. Here it's done three times so that Peter would know for sure that God meant business. And so Peter sees this. He sees this vision that there is no such thing anymore in Christianity as clean and unclean meat. As clean and unclean animals. That all animals have been cleansed. That all are clean. Pretty straightforward from the Lord. Let's see what happens here. 
Verse 17, now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, what, what does, the, Peter, don't quite under, what does this mean? Well, seems pretty clear, right? Clean and unclean animals. So he's doubting what it means. Behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were, were lodged there. While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise therefore, get thee down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius, and said, Behold, I am he whom ye seek. What is the cause wherefore ye are come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, and one that feareth God, and of good report among the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by an holy angel to send for thee into his house, and to hear words of thee. Then called he them in and lodged them. And on the morrow, Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the morrow after, they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them, and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him, and fell down at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, Here is, ye know how that it is unlawful, uh, an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company, or come unto one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Do you see what Peter did there? Peter received a vision showing him all sorts of animals which under Jewish law were considered unclean. Jesus Christ had made it clear to the disciples and the apostles already that the law has been fulfilled. That he fulfilled the law and the prophets. So he made it clear that the law was no longer necessary for Christians to keep. However, of course, Jews being Jews, they continued to keep the law. And here God showed Peter a vision which established to him, once again, the reality that if God has cleansed it, if God has called it clean, then he ought not call it unclean. Does he have to eat them? No, he doesn't have to eat them, but he better not call them unclean. Immediately after this vision, while Peter's thinking on what he sees, a group of people come to his door, knock on his door and say, hey Peter, a Gentile, a dog as it's called often in the Jewish culture. A Gentile is seeking you. He wants to know about salvation. Well, here's the thing. If Peter had not seen this vision, he very well may have said, the law says I can't go to that unclean man, to that, un- to that, that Gentile. I'm not going to go into his house. I'm not going to converse with him. I can't do so. If I go into his house, then I'm unclean. Then I can't go into the temple. But see, God had just shown a vision that said, well, God has cleansed. Don't you dare call it unclean, common. And so now Peter recognizes the implications. The the meaning, and part of the meaning is the implications. What did God intend here? God did not just intend to warn Peter against animals. Anything that I have called clean, don't you dare call unclean. That includes people. So go to this Gentile, Go into his house, preach to him the gospel, and watch God work. See, this is Peter doing the same thing that we're doing today. Taking the commands of Scripture and understanding the world meaning. What God intended, 
the implications which go beyond even exactly what God said. Paul receives a command, but understood the broader implications of that command. Any questions on that example? Consider Matthew chapter... Oh, significance. Then we'll consider Matthew chapter 28. Significance. The next definition. The significance. We've talked about the meaning of a text. It's that which the author willed. Then we've talked about the implications. That it's still that which the author willed, but it goes beyond the explicit command. Now let's talk about the significance of the text. The significance of the text are the specifics of how a reader, that's you and I, responds to or applies the meaning. The significance is individual in scope and under the control of the reader. So this is the part that you do control. This is the part that you control. When you read the scriptures, you have no control over what the scriptures mean. That's already set in stone. You have no control over the implications. That's already set in stone. That is what the author intended. But then you take that which the author intends, the the commands and the principles of Scripture, and you draw them out and you apply them to your life. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, for me, the way I'm going to apply that is I'm not even going to allow alcohol into my house. It's not going to get into my house. Well, that is a personal application of, that is the significance to me of the author's meaning and implications. Now, many people cook with alcohol, with wine and such, not with alcohol, alcohol burns off, but they cook with wine or they cook with beer, and so they're going to have alcohol beverage in their house, even though they may not get drunk with wine. They're not offending the scriptural command, nor are they offending the implications. They have taken that and they have drawn out the significance, the applications to themselves. Let's look at an example of this one. Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. There's a meaning to this text. Can anybody tell me what this text means? Sarah? Is that a hand? To spread the good news of Christ to every nation. What was the last part? The gospel of reconciliation of man to God. It's a pretty good concept of what the meaning is. I'm troubled by this passage sometimes when I see people that use it and preach what we ought, what the text says we should be doing and therefore we don't need to be doing this, 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 and this, and this. The text says we need to be making disciples. So what are these people out there on the street corners looking to uh, see people saved? It's not just about that or, or whatever the case may be. As we think about the pattern of meaning, there are valid implications to the pattern of meaning. Evangelize your neighbors. Go door knocking. Go to the mission field. See, to Bob, maybe Bob, when he reads this command to go into all the world and and preach the gospel, to make disciples, to baptize people in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost, recognizing God is with him, he reads that and, 
and he's and he's convicted and he says I need to I need to knock on my neighbor's door I need to invite them over for dinner and I need to give them the gospel Dan he reads that and he says my church has that door knocking ministry the Great Commission says we need to be going I need to be going I need to be a part of that door knocking ministry John reads it and he's convicted he says the Lord's called me to go to Japan. The Great Commission tells me I need to go and I'm going to go to Japan. All three of those are valid implications. Evangelizing neighbors, valid implication. Go door knocking, valid implication. Go to the mission field, a valid implication. But the significance is not going to be there for everyone. Not everyone in this room has been called to the mission field. But, does that mean that you are not fulfilling the Great Commission? Not necessarily. That's significance. The ways in which we apply the text with its meaning and implications to our lives according to the Holy Spirit's leading. Any questions on significance of the text? Subject matter. The subject matter are the specific areas of life and godliness which are referenced in a text. History, poetry, salvation, geography, grammar, tradition, sanctification. These are the subject matters. Now, this is where a lot of churches, pastors, teachers get off track. They teach the subject matter without teaching the meaning and their implications. They'll go to Ephesians, be not drunk with wine where is in excess, and they'll talk about the subject matter, and they'll talk about the culture, and they'll talk about who Paul was writing to, and they'll talk about the language, and they'll talk about all of these aspects, and then they'll forget to talk about what the, what the meaning of the text is, which is allow the Spirit of God to be constantly in charge of you, in, in control of you, and do that by not allowing mind-altering substances into your body. And so they'll completely miss the meaning and the implications because they're too busy focusing on the subject matters. The history, the geography, the grammar. And this is interesting stuff. It's good. I, I oftentimes try to relay much of that to you. But we can't miss the forest for the trees. The trees make up the forest. The subject matter makes up a portion of the meaning. The subject matter is the context within which the meaning is given. But we can't just teach the subject matter and miss the meaning. We can't just harp on the fact that the Psalms are beautiful Hebrew poetry and focus in on those elements of Hebrew poetry, though that's important, but miss what the psalmist is saying about God, about righteousness, about sin, about praise. That's subject matter. Understanding and interpretation. Understanding. A correct mental grasp of the author's meaning. I understand the text not when I recognize how many prepositions are in it, not when I have played all the mental gymnastics, not when I have determined its significance. I, have pro I properly un understand the text when I know what the author intended me to know. When I know the meaning and I know the implications, that's when I have understanding of the text. 
interpretation. We've already talked about hermeneutics, which is the science of discovering truth, of interpretation. I'll give you the definition of interpretation as the verbal or written expression of a reader's understanding. So, see, you can't interpret the text before you understand the text. You understand it, and then you interpret it. You take what you understand, and you relay it to others. So, as we looked at Matthew 28, we read the text, and I asked you to interpret the text to me. Sarah interpreted the text. She verbally expressed the understanding of what the text meant. Now, there may have been more. We could have probably gotten deeper. I know we could have gotten deeper into what it meant, its implications, and its significance. But she indeed interpreted that text for us based upon a proper understanding of the Great Commission. Translation. Translation is not the same as interpretation. Translation is not the same as understanding. Translation is a reproduction of a text's meaning in a different language. So we take the text's meaning and we reproduce it. We are not interpreting it. We are reproducing meaning, not producing interpretation. This is where many of the modern translations go wrong. They're paraphrasing. Of course, they're using the wrong Greek text as well. But they paraphrase instead of translate translating is where you take the Greek text and you accurately reflect it you don't interpret it if you allow your text to have interpretive bias if you interpret the text then you are not translating you are paraphrasing and interpreting and so you're telling people what they ought to believe instead of telling people what the Bible says the NIV is the most popular interpretation it's dynamically equivalent instead of formally equivalent. It doesn't give you a word-for-word translation. It gives you a thought-for-thought interpretation. And that is dangerous because now I am reading based upon what somebody else decided the text means instead of I am reading the text and understanding its meaning as close to the original text as possible. So translation is a reproduction of the text's meaning in a different language. Norms of language. I asked you to, to give me some insight into this one. What does it mean when I talk about the norms of language? I asked you about this one. Did anybody find anything about the norms of language? We're still not going to get done with everything. So let's just move on then. The range of meaning, the norms of language are the range of meaning allowed by the specific words used in a text. We can make words mean whatever we want them to mean, but if we want to communicate meaning, we must submit to the norms of language. A word may mean many things, but in any given context, the author intended it to mean only one thing. See, the, the, many of the cults do this all the time. A Mormon knocks on your door and says, I've got all of this great information for you. And you say, well... I, I don't believe what you believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They say, oh, we do too. I believe that salvation is by grace through faith. Oh, we do too. I believe that justification is not by works but by faith alone. Oh, we do too. The problem is they've, rede they've redefined the word justification. They've redefined what it means that Jesus was the Son of God. They've re they, may even not even, they, they may even redefine Jesus. 
And so they have redefined words. And so while you're speaking the same language, one of you is using the norms of language, the other one is redefining the norms of language to fit their purposes. The Mormons do this, the Jehovah's Witness do this, the Emergent Church does this, the Word Faith Movement does this, um, the New Apostolic Reformation does this. Um, just about every false Christian group does this because they still have to be Christian, right? So they still have to believe that in Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through faith. But they just redefine all of those terms. Catholics do this. You talk about a Catholic and they will, they will say every single time, yes, I believe Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith. But then you ask them what faith is and they say faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the church. Now add that little bit of the church there. And all of a sudden it's not faith in Christ alone. It's the, the church becomes a part of it. But they'll still say salvation is by grace through faith. What's grace? Grace is that which is conferred by a proper relationship to the church. Not what we define grace as, which is unmerited favor. God giving me that which I don't deserve. And so it's not that the, the terms are different, it's that they're defining them differently. They're not using the norms of language. And see, we have to use the norms of language if we want to properly convey meaning. And this is important because what we understand then is that if God wanted to properly convey meaning in the Bible, did God want us to understand the Bible? Yes. And if God is, is wanting us to properly understand, then He's going to use the norms of language. God is not going to use words and then define them differently than they were defined in their day. He used the norms of language and the biblical authors under inspiration of the Holy Spirit used the norms of language. So if we understand what a word meant in that day, then we understand what the Bible meant. Because they're not, you know, Paul did not say, for by grace are you saved through faith, but he had a different definition of grace than the rest of the world or faith than the rest of the world. See, because then he's not communicating anything. People are going to read it and they're going to say, oh good, by grace through faith, except Paul had a different idea in his mind when he said that. That's, that's not how it works. God wanted to communicate meaning, which means God used norms of language and we need to use the norms of language as well. Words meaning what they are supposed to mean, the range of meaning that is allowed. Go to a dictionary and find out what a word means. That's all a word can mean. We can't say it means other things. We can, but we've stepped outside of the norms of language. Literary genre. For sake of time, I won't ask you about this. It's the literary form being used by the author and the specific rules of understanding governing that form. See, when you go to different forms of literary composition, you interpret them differently. If you try to interpret the entire Bible the same way, you're going to be in a world of trouble. Because all of a sudden you're going to go to Ezekiel, or you're going to go to Revelation, and you're going to see horses. And these horses are going to be coming out of heaven. And they're going to be all different colors. And they're going to have names written on them. And you're going to be seeing things in Ezekiel like wheels inside of wheels, which I preached a message on two weeks ago, if you want to know what that means. Uh, it's online. Wheels and wheels and fires and globes and, and things bouncing around and cherry bim and, and wings and eyes and all sorts of crazy stuff. And if you interpret everything the same way you would interpret Jesus Christ saying, go ye therefore into all the world, then you're going to come up with some pretty crazy stuff. And so we recognize that in the scripture, 
There is poetry. There's narrative. There are parables. There are letters. There's prophecy. There's hyperbole or exaggeration. There's idioms. There's proverbs. There's metaphors. There's, do I have parables on there twice? I do. There's more parables. There's sarcasm. There's irony. There's allegory. There's history. There's illusion. And we need to see these things. And we need to see the genres that are being used. Jesus Christ announced parables. He always did. And when he announces a parable, we need to recognize that there's one specific truth that he's going to convey here. He's not going to he's not using allegory, which means everything has has a meaning. He's using a parable, one meaning, the whole the whole thing, one meaning. Find the one meaning. Don't start allegorizing everything because that's outside of the literary genre. When we go into prophecy, when we see these illusions, like we, we saw earlier with the numerology, the number three. Peter saw the vision three times. Well, probably literally, but we understand that means something. We can interpret the meaning of that because we understand literary genre. Because we understand use of literary concepts. Very important to understanding the Bible. And then context. Context is the meaning of the literary material surrounding any given text. Context is essential. So when we read the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, we go to the surrounding verses, we go to what was happening on that time, we recognize what Jesus Christ had been saying, what had happened already, and we interpret what he is saying based upon what he has already said and what he is going to say. And then we go broader in our context. And I don't have the chart this week. You'll see it in a week to come. Where we recognize that if, if we're trying to interpret Paul's writings in, let's say, Galatians, we begin by looking at the context in, in the book. And then we look at the context of the books that are similar to Galatians, written by Paul, such as Romans. And then we look at the context of other books written by Paul that maybe aren't as similar all the Pauline epistles. And then we look at the context of the New Testament. And then we look at the context of the Bible. And each context is a little, a little bit less um, applicable than the ones that are closer. What, what Paul is writing in Galatians, the context of Galatians is going to be more applicable to what we need to understand Galatians than the context of, say, First Peter. But Scripture interprets Scripture, so First Peter is certainly valid. Any questions on context? All I've done this week is give you definitions. I have laid the foundation for what we're going to continue in the weeks to come. We, we laid the foundation, and now we're going to build upon that foundation how to take these definitions and understandings and concepts, apply them properly, and then interpret the Bible.